Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. And today we want to do a discussion on neuromuscular reversal agents. We've done several discussions so far about the neuromuscular junction in terms of the anatomy, how a signal is sent down through the nerve, acetylcholine is being released from the nerve, binding to the nicotinic receptor on the muscle membrane, causing that depolarization, the release of calcium from inside that muscle cell and the contraction that occurs there. If you've not listened to that episode, I'd really encourage you to go back and do so. We're not going to go through all the different pieces of that cascade, so I really encourage you to go back and listen to that if you have not already done so. Next, we're going to talk about the actual reversal agents. So if you've not listened to our two discussions on the neuromuscular blocking agents, I would really also recommend you to go listen to those as well. So this is one of those episodes that I would encourage you to go listen to a couple other ones ahead of time because we're going to assume that you have listened to those prior to going into this episode. Really, today, we want to focus on the reversal agents themselves. So depending on what type of neuromuscular blocking agent we have given, what are the different types of medications that we can do to reverse them at the end of a case? Is this something that we need to reverse quickly? Is this something that the case has been going on for 10 hours? We've used a lot of this uh, neuromuscular blocking agent, and now we need to reverse it, but we're afraid of X, Y, and Z happening. Side effect-wise, what are the different options that we have? And I feel like in the last two years or so, it's really turned into Sugamidex being the main drug that we use as a reversal agent, and we've kind of shined away from the other type of reversal agents that we can give. But we really wanted to go now through this discussion and talk about what are the mechanisms of actions of all the other types of reversal agents. If you're at a a certain case where you'd be contraindicated to use Sugamidex, uh, we think it's valuable to understand the different options that are available to you. Like Cole said, it's important that you listen to the other episodes first, but we're just going to lay some ground rules here as we get going so that we're clear on what we're talking about. So let's just go over some of the anatomy. So when acetylcholine is released into the neuromuscular junction, it will bind to the nicotinic receptors. This is both on the presynaptic neuron and as well on the postsynaptic membrane of the muscle cell there. Acetylcholinesterase is an enzyme that's located around the neuromuscular junction that will break down acetylcholine via hydrolysis, and this will form choline and then acetate as well. We can obviously give neuromuscular blockers. This will prevent the muscle from being stimulated to contract. There's two different ways that we can do that. Obviously, we can depolarize it using succinylcholine, or we can use a non-depolarizer and we'll get into that is pretty much the, the bulk of our discussion today of, of how we're going to reverse those. So non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers, uh, I think the more common ones that we think of are rocuronium, vacuronium. Uh, those will probably be the, the main ones that you see, mevacurium, pancuronium. There's, there's, there's lots that are in this category. But the way that these muscle relaxants are working is by binding to the nicotinic receptor and antagonizing them or blocking them from being stimulated by acetylcholine. So in order to reverse these neuromuscular blockers, we can give acetylcholinesterase inhibitors such as neostigmine, edrophonium, pyrotostigmine is another one that we could give. And by inhibiting the acetylcholinesterase, more acetylcholine will be available or present there in the synapse. So this is we're not creating more acetylcholine. We're basically giving the acetylcholine that is 
made or is present there a, a better chance to compete with the uh, neuromuscular blocker that we're using. So uh, by inhibiting this acetylcholinesterase, again, this is just going to prevent the breakdown of acetylcholine and will allow that to compete with the neuromuscular blocker. Obviously, the more acetylcholine that's there, the better chance that it will have to bind to that receptor compared to the neuromuscular blocker. Yeah, and these uh, acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, they're also going to have an effect by stimulating the presynaptic nicotinic receptor. Before really learning this kind of topic in anesthesia school, I didn't realize the importance of the presynaptic nicotinic receptor. I had always learned in undergrad that you know, you send that signal through the neuron, the acetylcholine is released, and it goes and binds to the nicotinic receptor on the postsynaptic membrane, which is the muscle cell. But there's also the presynaptic nicotinic receptor. So when the acetylcholine is released from the neuron, it can loop right back around and bind to a receptor on that neuron itself. And this will cause the packaging of more acetylcholine to then be released. So by giving acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, this will increase the amount of acetylcholine that is going to be present in that synapse. So more of it is also going to be able to bind to the presynaptic nicotinic receptors, which will then cause more acetylcholine to be made and released. So it's kind of a positive cycle here that's going to occur rather than a negative feedback. So one of the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors that we can give is neostigmine. And this is dosed at around 0.02 to 0.07 milligrams per kilogram. And it has an onset of 5 to 15 minutes and a duration of action of about an hour. It's going to be metabolized and eliminated equally by both the liver and the kidneys. Another one is going to be idrophonium, and this is dosed at 0.5 to 1 milligram per kilogram with an onset of 60 to 120 seconds. And this lasts for around 45 minutes. As you can see here, edrophonium is going to have an onset way sooner than the neostigmine. So keep that in mind as we move forward when we talk about the anticholinergics that we're going to pair these medications with. The onset is what we're really going to be focusing on when determining if we need to combine these with atropine, with robinol, etc. So this one is 60 to 120 seconds, and it lasts around 45 minutes. It's going to be mainly metabolized and eliminated by the liver, but it does have some kidney involvement as well. Pyridostigmine is dosed at 0.1 to 0.3 milligrams per kilogram, and it has an onset of 10 to 20 minutes, and it lasts for about 1 to 2 hours, and it is mainly metabolized and eliminated by the liver, but it does have kidney involvement as well. So all three of these acetylcholinesterase inhibitors are what's called quaternary amines, aka they're ionized. And what that means is that they're going to be lipophobic or hydrophilic, so they're fearing the lipid or the fatty membrane, so they're not going to be able to pass through the blood-brain barrier. However, there is a fourth acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, and this is physostigmine. And this is a tertiary amine, meaning it's not ionized, and it can pass through the blood-brain barrier and the placenta. Interestingly, physostigmine around 40 mics per kilogram can reduce post-op shivering. That's something that I didn't know before researching this topic, but you can give about 40 mics per kilogram of physostigmine to reduce that post-op shivering. So keep that in mind. I think that's a really great test question. What acetylcholinesterase inhibitor can cross the blood-brain barrier? So anytime you're trying to deal with um, changing anything from a central acting disorder where you would want to have more acetylcholine present in the central nervous system, this would be the medication that you would give to increase all that acetylcholine in that central nervous system. Uh, and lastly, just keep in mind with these kind of medications that while a lot of them are going to be prolonged in patients with renal failure, the neuromuscular blockers that they're trying to reverse also typically rely on the kidneys, which means both 
the blocker and the reversal agent are going to be prolonged. So it kind of equals itself out and you don't really need to change the dose of your reversal agents just because someone's in kidney failure. So like Cole mentioned, we give these with anticholinergics. And if you think about giving acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, you're not only going to see an increase of acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction, but you're also going to see increased acetylcholine throughout the body. So think parasympathetic response with our increased acetylcholine. So that's our rest and digest. We'll see bradycardia, increased GI tract motility. You can see meiosis, urination, bronchoconstriction, and uh, that bronchoconstriction, remember, is from the muscarinic 3 receptors that are in the bronchioles. So as a result, when we give these anticholinergics, they're muscarinic agonists, so that'd be atropine or scopolamine or glycopyrrolate. We give these to combat the side effects of the increased acetylcholine after giving those acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. So uh, this will could result in a sympathetic picture, but it's basically just balancing out the parasympathetic response that we see from that increased acetylcholine levels. Uh, like Cole mentioned, when we think about the uh, acetylcholinesterase inhibitors that cross the blood-brain barrier, the main one that you're thinking there is physostigmine. When you think about the different anticholinergics, remember that atropine and scopolamine are tertiary amines, which means they will cross the placenta or blood-brain barrier. Uh, this could result in some sedation, more so with scopolamine compared to atropine. But remember that glyco is a quaternary amine, so that is the one that is not going to cross the blood-brain barrier or placenta and has no sedation effects. When we think in terms of the side effects that we'll see from these or basically the sympathetic response, uh, even though it's just blunting the parasympathetic response, atropine will show the greatest increase in heart rate. Glyco is going to have more of an effect on drying up secretion, so we often give that uh, even when you give ketamine, sometimes that has a nice profile where you can give the glyco to uh, affect those secretions. Scopolamine is going to be more useful in decreasing motion-induced nausea. So when we're thinking about the different areas that we can attack PONV, using scopolamine is nice. When you're thinking of the vertebral apparatus, when you're trying to, if you have somebody that is you know, motion sick very easily, scopolamine would be a good choice there. So based on the time it takes for these meds to have an onset, is going to be the main determinant that we think of when we are pairing them with acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. So we're going to try to pair them with a similar type of onset. Neostigmine and pyridostigmine are paired with glyco. Remember, edrophonium has a much faster onset, so that's the one that we would want to pair with atropine. Are you looking to join an organization where you can work at your full scope of practice? Join Sound Anesthesia's team and benefit from CRNA leadership with over 20 years of experience. Sound CRNAs enjoy career development, a clear leadership pathway, robust well-being resources, and the ability to perform at the top of their license. Sound is dedicated to providing our CRNAs with the tools needed to thrive in their practice. With multiple nationwide opportunities, we are confident you will find the right program for you. Learn more at careers.soundphysicians.com. So I feel like with those medications, it makes sense if you're trying to reverse these neuromuscular blockers, if we can just increase the amount of acetylcholine present in the space, it'll be able to competitively compete with the neuromuscular blockers at these nicotinic receptors. And the more acetylcholine we have, the more likely it is they're going to bind to the receptor rather than the neuromuscular blocker. And that's pretty much what was used all the way up until a couple of years ago when Sugamidex came out. And Sugamidex was a game changer. 
like a significant game changer. And what Sugamidex does is instead of simply increasing the amount of acetylcholine that's present to compete with the neuromuscular blocker, Sugamidex encapsulates and surrounds the aminosteroid non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers. So this is going to be your rocuronium, your vecuronium, and your pancuronium. It does not have any effect on the other neuromuscular blockers. So if I'm going to be giving atricurium, Sugamidex doesn't really affect that. But in terms of rocuronium, vecuronium, and pancuronium, that's where we're going to see Sugamidex have its main um, effect on. And this usually works out pretty well because, at least in my practice, um, where I've gone through different clinicals and work at, rocuronium and vecuronium are really the main two if you're not going to be giving succinylcholine that we would give. Otherwise, we're going to be giving cisatricurium, which is also Nimbex, and that's broken down by other pathways in the body anyway. But in terms of these main medications that we give, rocuronium and vecuronium, Sugamidex has been a game changer by allowing us to utilize these medications throughout our procedures all the way up until a few minutes before the end of the case, and you can just reverse it with Sugamidex. So like I said, how it works is it surrounds the neuromuscular blocker and it encapsulates it. And in essence, then it makes it inactive. It makes that relaxant an inactive medication because that neuromuscular blocker or the relaxant can't bind to the nicotinic receptor. And it has very, very fast onset. So once you push Sugamidex, really in about 30 to 90 seconds after you've given it, it's going to have that immediate effect rather than the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors we talked about. Adrophonium, like we said, will have an effect within, you know, one or two minutes. But the rest of them take a couple minutes, like five to 20 minutes even, to really start kicking in. So you don't have to worry quite as much about timing it right. You can simply wait until you're ready to reverse, give the Sugamidex, and you'll see the immediate effect. It's important to remember that Sugamidex is excreted unchanged by the kidneys surrounding the neuromuscular blocker molecules. And so once it surrounds that molecule, then it will just be secreted in the kidney. So if you have somebody that has renal failure, this is one consideration where Sugamidex may not be your best choice, uh, just simply because it is dependent on the kidneys for the excretion. In order to make sure that you give enough Sugamidex, like Cole mentioned, you are encapsulating all of that muscle relaxant. And so it's important that whatever amount of remaining neuromuscular blocker that's in the body, we give enough Sugamidex to take care of that and surround all of those different molecules. So we base the dose on the amount of twitches uh, using the train of four. So a patient, if they have at least two twitches, then you can reverse with two milligrams per kilogram of Sugamidex. If less twitches, but it's post-tectonic twitch, then you can give four milligrams per kilogram. You can even reverse right after a full induction dose of giving rock, but that would be with 16 milligrams per kilogram, which obviously is a very significant dose, which could also have other risk factors there with uh, allergic reaction or um, problems there. So, uh, But remember that you can reverse a full induction dose. You just have to increase the amount of Sigamidex that you're giving. So let's talk about the scenario where you have done a procedure, you've reversed with Sugamidex, and then the patient needs to go back to surgery later that day. So let's say you originally only gave four milligrams per kilogram of Sugamidex. Then you can give a typical dose of rocuronium or vecuronium given that four hours has elapsed since your dose of Sugamidex. So this would be, again, if they had regular twitches or if they had post-tectonic twitches, that would be up to the four milligrams per kilogram of Sigamidex. And again, you need at least four hours to elapse before you could go back and give your regular dose of rock or VEC. 
If you need to go right back to surgery and you only gave up to the four milligrams per kilogram, then you need to give a full intubating dose of rocuronium. So that would be increased from that 0.6 milligrams per kilogram of rock, and you'd increase that to 1.2 milligrams per kilogram. Say none of those scenarios are working out, you can always use a different neuromuscular blocker. So this would be something that would be not affected by Cigamidex. Like Cole mentioned, these main options would be cis-atricurium or Nimbex, or you could give atricurium as well. So while Cigamidex definitely has limited side effects compared to acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, and what I mean by side effects with the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors is you're going to see that parasympathetic profile. Uh, there are some things to keep in mind with Cigamidex. The main one I think that we run into most frequently in practice is that it does bind to oral contraceptives. So if you have somebody who's childbearing aged, uh, just make sure that you uh, communicate with them or you could just avoid that altogether and use a acetylcholinesterase inhibitor instead of using Sugamidex or there just needs to be a very, very clear conversation with them um, so that they are aware of the side effects that will be because of that Sugamidex during procedures. So the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors and then Sugamidex, they really target the non- depolarizing neuromuscular blockers. So let's talk for a second here about succinylcholine and the metabolism of succinylcholine. So if you remember from our previous episode, succinylcholine is a depolarizing neuromuscular blocker, and it works by binding to the nicotinic receptors. And instead of blocking them, they act as an agonist, and it holds open that nicotinic receptor or the nicotinic channel and causes a depolarization on the muscle membrane. And as a result, because this channel is held open for a longer period of time with the succinylcholine compared to if you just simply had acetylcholine bound to it, the cell is unable to reset itself and repolarize, if you will, and prepare for the next depolarization. This results really in the muscle being prevented from having any subsequent depolarizations occur until the, uh, until the succinylcholine will unbind from the nicotinic receptor. When succinylcholine is injected into a patient, the body is full of plasma cholesterol which we also call pseudocholinesterase, and it's going to it's going to metabolize succinylcholine. Only a small portion of the succinylcholine actually reaches the neuromuscular junction. This is what I actually found fascinating when learning this topic. When we give our dose, let's say 100 milligrams of succinylcholine, only a very small portion of that will actually reach any of that nicotinic receptor that is located on that neuromuscular junction. And this is because all that plasma cholinesterase will just break it all down prior to getting there. So really, we need to focus on what is going to affect the amount of plasma cholinesterase that is in the body, which will then affect how fast succinylcholine is broken down. So plasma cholinesterase is inhibited by neostigmine and protostigmine. So if you've given neostigmine or protostigmine, this actually will cause your succinylcholine to last longer if you will give succinylcholine in the next few hours after that. And that's because plasma cholinesterase will be inhibited, meaning that succinylcholine will get broken down as quickly. So if you do have a patient that comes back to the OR and they had previously on that same day received neostigmine or protostigmine, and you're just going to be doing a very quick thing where you want to just give succinylcholine, just know that you need to give a smaller dose of succinylcholine because it'll have a prolonged duration of action. So that wraps us up for neuromuscular reversal agents. Hopefully this was helpful in terms of understanding what are the other available options we have besides just Sugamidex? At least, like I said, from my personal practice, 95% of the time I'm going to be using rocuronium or I'm going to be using succinylcholine and it'll be worn off by the end of the case and I won't have to worry about reversing it. So really, I solely rely on 
Sugamidex for 90% of my cases, if not more. As a result, I think it's very important that we understand what are the other options available for us in terms of using neostigmine, edrophonium, et cetera, and what types of medications in terms of the anticholinergics that we're going to need to give to combat the side effects of these medications. So again, hopefully this was helpful in refreshing on those or learning those for the first time and that it'll help take better care of our patients.